0: Hey, folks, this is Mike Cosper from Harbor Media, and I'm jumping in here for a moment just to let you know that this is the last episode of Steadfast with Sandra McCracken for this season. It's been a great season. We've really enjoyed working with Sandra on the show, and we look forward to making more episodes in the future. But for now, this is it. If you've jumped in in the middle and you haven't listened to the previous episodes, we want to encourage you to go back and check those out. We've been a lot of great conversations. Okay, thanks for listening. On with the show.
1: I'm here in Nashville in Forest Hills. My guest is Kaysen Cooley, who's a producer, making a life of music and production and produces all kinds of amazing things that are coming out of Nashville. Maybe things that would be surprising to you as Nashville is thought of as country music or straightforward Christian music, but there is so much happening here. Kason is right at the front of that. So thanks for joining us, pull up a chair. So how long have you lived in Nashville?
0: 20 years. It's weird when you live someplace longer than where you grew up. Where'd you grow up? Wichita, Kansas.
1: So we were just chatting. And I think one of the things that's interesting is how we carry things that we start with. Like our early memories just stay with us. Uh And you are still doing music, which is kind of also part of your formation. What's your first memory of music and how is it still with you?
0: I mean, I do remember... You asked that a second ago, and I had to jog my memory because I have so many, because I grew up on the road with my parents doing music. so. What
1: was your dad's band? It was Southern Gospel, right?
0: My dad played piano in a Southern Gospel quartet called the Cathedral Corset. I mean, they were like sort of one of the main groups in Southern Gospel for a long time, but right before I was born, my dad played with them for five years. And in that period, they were winning Dove Awards, but starting to get nominated for Grammys and winning some Grammys. So they were sort of in that camp. And then when I was born my dad quit in order to be around me. And then my mom started, you know, playing Mm -hmm. bass with my dad Mm -hmm. and they became a duet and traveled. I assume that was sort of a natural shift. It made sense when I was a kid. And now that I'm older, I'm like, oh man, like (laughs) to step out of a mechanism like that, that was working and kind of do something really Mm -hmm. unproven, you know, travel Mm -hmm. around, book your own shows and be completely independent that way. You know, it's a very vague memory, but I do remember crawling around on the floor and my parents practicing. Like, my dad playing piano, my mom would play bass and hearing that. Yeah. But I was singing on stage with them when I was two.
1: It was you and your sister. And your sister's a few years younger?
0: She's six years younger. Okay. Yeah, some of those really early memories, I was basically an only child, you know.
1: Wow. And it was like an RV? Yeah. It was like... Yeah. That was... I mean, my sister gave me a... I probably told you this, but my sister gave me... Or handed down her Barbie... Camper to me uh-huh. when I was a kid, <laughs> so so like my dream was like, and somehow music got folded in for me. But basically, your childhood was like my, you know, my American dream <laughs> it would be well, like. Well,
0: what's funny about that around. is if you watch Breaking Bad at all, that's the motorhome. <laughs> oh
1: that's the, well, minus the the mess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the uh, the Bounder, the Night Seal uh-huh. would have been. I mean, they got a different one later, but for a ten to twelve year period of like late 80s, early 90s, that Bounder, that that same model.
1: Oh, my God! Bounder by
0: Fleetwood without the meth lab in it.
1: That That is so great. (laughs) Well, I mean, coming up to this present moment, it's been quite a, I mean, it's been a slow process and a really, I think, worthwhile to do it slow. We've just made this record together, this Mm -hmm. Songs from the Valley. I've never really made a record like this way before. It has uh, so many characteristics that have to do with, like I think of it as if we made this like slow cooked meal and mm-hmm. it took like time and then you'd put these ingredients inside and some of them you put in a jar and you put over here. Yeah, and then it's you come stew for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't know how, you know, it's, it's been a particular gift to be able to make an album with a friend, like collaborating with you after knowing each other for 20 years and, knowing some of these stories. And I just think, I'm just excited for people to hear more of what you do. I think that the job of a producer is mysterious to a lot of people that would maybe just like not know what is that. I think maybe we have some cultural imagination for like a TV producer, but it's different with music and it's Mm -hmm. changed probably. Has that role changed for you as a producer?
0: 100% it's changed. And what's expected of a producer has changed a lot. You know, people don't understand what record production is and even doing it as long as I have, you know, took a long time to kind of, well, well, I was always thinking about what is my role and what's my job and how do I do it? And am I doing it right? And is there a standard way of doing it? And you get to a point where you're like, well, I'm working steadily. So I guess the way I do it is how I need to do it. Like it's like that <laughs> you is get comfortable with it. Yeah. If you're doing yeah. it and it's working and people are coming to you, then I guess you're doing that's the right way to do it for mm. you. Everyone does it differently. I heard a session musician friend of mine say every session is sort of an extension of that producer's brain. Like how they organize mm. their thoughts and their day is kind of how their session is organized too. Yeah. So it could be chaotic or it could be very ordered. And
1: who did you learn the most from as far as like what does a producer do? Was I, well, you know, I,
0: I really never had that sit under another person. Yeah. Thing. And I think now I'm getting close to 40. I'll be 39 this month. And I still feel like that's a phase that I still need to go through, like being mentored uh-huh. by someone else or sitting under someone else and really learning from someone else. But I came about it through, you know, I was in the normals with Andy Osinga. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of that, he had taken an advance from the last record they did and bought a Digio One rig, which is like the first kind of Pro Tools thing, and made a solo record in his apartment, which I helped him with. So that was sort of my first venture into, like, we're really making something. Mm -hmm. Like before that, you had to be in the studio at Belmont or you had to pay a day rate. So there was no getting into the studio for fun.
1: It wasn't that same kind of explorative process before that. Yeah. It was more like you were going in as people in a band hired on a label to do a thing.
0: Man, I mean, those records that we made with Malcolm Byrne, I just think there was so much more I could have learned if I had been thinking, this is what I want to do. And I should be really sponging in a lot more technical information. I think I learned a lot about how he treated people and the pace of a day and how an artistic moment could come together. So I do feel like I learned from that, but Mm -hmm. I never was thinking much about the gear. Mm -hmm. And because everyone had all this gear, it took me a long time to realize that you can do a lot with, Hmm. Almost nothing. You Mm -hmm. know, I always felt like I was behind the curve. And one day I was like, I'm not. I have everything people are making records with. I don't need more gear. But I I always wanted that to sit under someone else and really Hmm. learn. So I feel like I really figured it out on my own. And a lot of my friends did too.
1: Yeah. You know, I hear that there's been a lot of, like as you are just talking you've had a natural progression of things, which is a real gift. Like the fact that you've had work, one thing has sort of led to another. And yet you don't seem to be somebody who shies away from struggle and that you can engage in points of tension, even as you're producing. Like with me, like as you're producing a song, you tend to push toward like, so if I'm performing and you're giving me feedback, if I'm performing a guitar vocal or something, you have a way of like knowing how far to push to where I'm on the edge of the emotion as i'm performing so clearly even though you have an easygoing personality that's like yeah everything's great but you understand tension and struggle because if you didn't understand like the edge of emotion that way i don't think you'd be able to do the work you do with such skill and i'm curious like where does that come from in you like where does it feel like how do you tap into those places of tension and release both in work and in in life
0: I mean, with, with your record, there were such personal songs. It wasn't like, hey, I've been co-writing for a year and a half. And these were like <laughs> the 10, you know, like most radio friendly things that we found. And so we, yeah. we need them to go into this format and work in this genre. It just felt like a really personal record. Yeah. And it was a personal record that I understood mm-hmm. for the inside because, you know, we've been friends for so long. and And I was around for... Yeah. I mean, not like you were, but I was. Yeah, they're not, for it. Like, it, it's
1: not. I don't write fiction. <laughs> it was emotional to me,
0: you know, like yeah. what was happening. And this isn't the first record we did together.
1: But, no, that's true. We, Red know, Balloon, but, we worked on that uh-huh. and we toured together around that time. Yeah. That was, yeah, man, that was so much fun. But this
0: is the first time I feel like it was like me and you, like we're going to kind of go for something on it. But because yeah. I was kind of in and out on that record. I yeah.
1: Wasn't, Right. I think we had it at a certain point and then gave it over to you, right? Mm-hmm. And then you added some really amazing melodies and just filled out all these spaces in that record. It was really great.
0: I'm sure I said this to you several times while we made the record, but I was like, selfishly, I'm doing this for me. <laughs> like, I need to make this record. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, it was cathartic for me to work through it. So I, I don't know. I've, I felt very connected to the emotion of it. And I, I remember thinking, like, I just want... You know, let's just do the song over again till we're both crying and then that's, then that's <laughs> and then we'll then keep we'll it know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I remember one of the first days when we sat down. Me I mean, as we've been working on this a while. It was maybe a year and a half ago, and Tyler was in, and we— Right. So Tyler Berkham is playing guitar, and I'm playing guitar, and we sat there. And we just—I think just the feeling of looping a song and just mm-hmm. playing it and playing it and playing it until, like, what he's playing on the guitar and what I'm playing on the guitar just start to, like, mesh into this one sound. Mm-hmm. And then the vocal kind of just floats on top of that, yeah. and it can breathe in this space, but— The slowness of it, I think, contributes to your ability to pay attention to that. It almost feels a little bit monastic the way you approach production. Uh,
0: I wanted the listener on this record to almost feel a little voyeuristic. Like Mm -hmm. they were kind of looking in on a a moment that maybe they weren't supposed to. Like they were getting a glimpse behind Mm -hmm. something. And maybe that looping process, you kind of forget you're recording and you're performing something. You're tapped into the story of what the song is. And then when you get that emotional performance, flaws and all, it, it just feels like... Yeah, you're mm-hmm. in that moment with that person. Like, they're sharing something really personal.
1: You do a lot of pop records, too. Is it a different approach when you're recording a pop uh, or producing a pop track?
0: Uh, I guess it's sort of similar. I think you're maybe tapping into a different emotion. Mm-hmm.
1: You did Ingrid Michaelson, that song, Boy's Chase Girl. Did you guys uh, produce that here?
0: Yeah, we, uh, Katie Herzig and I did that.
1: I mean, that song is... Like, that is one that I could play on repeat, and it has... You know, so it's a different emotion, Uh but it has the quality of magnetism where you just want to keep coming back to it.
0: Well, there is that thing with pop music, especially with vocals, where it's like vocal, vocal, vocal. You got to really nail that vocal. It's got to be like superhuman and perfect and all of that. And the way that track happened, it was sort of sent over to us as like, hey, would you guys want to take a day to kind of, you know, do a version of this and see Mm -hmm. if it works? and We put it together, and then Ingrid was in town for something else. But I only had two or three takes for singing the song. And it was on a mic that I had just bought that wasn't really a mic that's really for pop music. So there is a rawness to that vocal. I think that song, it worked on Top 40, I think, because of its simplicity and its groove and mm. the hookiness of the song. But there's a lot about the way it was built that was a little bit ratty, maybe, yeah. <laughs> in that way. You know, That's it was probably kinda, why I liked
1: it. Yeah, kinda, it had, it had <laughs> yes. a
0: raw character yes. to it that is that I do think set it apart from mm. you know when it came on the radio. There was There's almost a lo-fi quality to it.
1: Has your work changed based on the space that you work in? Like, we're here, so we're uh. in Forest Hills, and it's yeah. like kind of woodsy and scenic, and there's you know, right now there's like fall leaves. and But, you know, in your last place in East Nashville, it was like more like artsy man cave. I don't know. Uh-huh. Like, why, No, what it's a
0: big you? cinder block building that I yeah. built when I was broke. And, I, you know, people <laughs> were like, you need to have uneven walls and build a room within a room and have all yeah. this division. And I was like, man, if I can't hear it, I can't afford to spend money on it. You know, yeah. like and that's all stuff that I don't have any, you know, just coming out of a bedroom. Like that was a step up for me. I wasn't coming at it from the other direction.
1: Has it changed your work?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, this room is really, you know, was treated and designed by someone who knows what they're doing. The clarity of what I'm doing. I can hear what I'm doing. I can make more informed decisions. sonically.
1: I think that's interesting. Uh Like if the space actually, I was just talking earlier today with a friend about making a record in 2005 and it was the first time we'd had Studio Gear at home. There's a song on there. In The Secret of His Presence, that Chris Minor song, and I was sitting on the bed. I literally recorded that sitting on the bed. Uh-huh. And I'd never had that experience where I wasn't in a studio or it wasn't like in. And I think you hear, it's a little bit like the record we just made, but you hear this, like, I don't know. There's just something else that happens in the place where you actually put the mics and and record things.
0: Yeah, I think what really contributes to that is that feeling of unhurried time. Yes. You know, and I, I think that was the deal in the studio where you're like, you had a, you're paying a day rate. Right? It's so like, well, we need to get as much out yeah. of this as we can. So you're very conscious of like the the clock. And, Your
1: heart rate's probably up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes literally. that's good
0: though. You know, like that yes. sense of urgency, like we got to get this right now. And yeah. I think sometimes it's the opposite where people are like, oh, we can just spend as much time as we want. and <laughs> And that can kind of lead to an apathy too. And I think maybe that's sort of what... I do feel and so much of how things have changed is like, at least in the world that I've been in the past couple of years, there's fewer and fewer people like I've saved up a budget and I'm making a record. And so they're bringing this urgency to the table. Mm. Now it's kind of like, well, if something happens, we'll split it. And there's this (laughs) sort of casual way people enter into things that has hampered that sense of urgency sometimes too. So there's no one way to do it. I think I that, know, it's so true. like sometimes the formality to it can really breed an intense performance and the casualness can breed an apathy and a performance too. And mm. then vice versa, you mm. know, like I think it's just a, every artist is different. I remember reading in an, some magazine about if a artist sees like a real cheap microphone, they're going to feel casual. Like they can really perform and the expensive one's going to make them be in their head. Cause they think they need to do something really different. And mm-hmm. I feel like some artists respond that way and others don't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're talking about pushing, like how you can push an artist or how I would push an artist to find the tension. I found that some people, like when I'm working with them for the first time, I might just give them some vocal notes and just see how they respond to it. And some Mm -hmm. people are like, oh man, like they love that challenge. And yeah, I think I can do better. And oh, that's great. I'm going to incorporate that. And they're like, they're just go, go, go. And then other people, you say two things and it's just like, they, they
1: just fall
0: in on themselves. A yeah, they bit just it, like taps into an insecurity, uh-huh. and then everything's very thought out. And I'm like, oh no, they, I sent them into their head. And now it's, <laughs> we're just gonna have to do this another day, you know. You and which sometimes with people like, just record it at your house when no one's around. Like that's when they do the best work. And yeah. so everyone's different. I think that's the skill is learning what everyone needs. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think mm-hmm. so much about that with you know, raising children. People are like, oh, should they go to, should you send your kid to this kind of a school or that kind of a school? Like, well, I don't know, know your kid and know how they react to the environment. Like every, every kid's different. Everyone needs something different. I think artists are the same way.
1: I feel like as I get older, I'm able to observe people more than I used to. Yeah. I see things I didn't used to see. Yeah. Is your production and work um, deepened because of that, your ability to see?
0: Yeah, I hope so. I used to think, oh, I need to develop this skill in the way I approach someone while they're singing. And then once mm-hmm. I have that, I'll just do that all the time with everyone. And then you kind of learn a way to interact with someone. And it works a couple of times, then it doesn't work the third time. So then mm-hmm. you learn, well, this works with certain people and it doesn't with others. So.
1: Mm-hmm. You were talking recently about going and taking a walk and coming back and listening to it. Is there Mm -hmm. something about that rhythm that's helped your work?
0: Yeah. I just, there's just still a thing of when you're too close to the painting, you know, where you're, you're just hyper-focused on certain things and you're not hearing the big picture. Yeah, A lot of times I'll just listen at home at night. I'll hear different things when I can't change anything. Mm -hmm. Like if I can change something, I'm like, Oh, I don't like that. I'll start working on that. And I'm just not staying in the big picture. Mm -hmm. When I listen at home, And I can't change anything. I have to just hear the song in its entirety and, Mm. and I'll be like, oh, I didn't even notice that thing over there. You know, like that's, (laughs) that's actually really nice and it's in a good spot. I was fussing with it all day or, Mm. yeah, I don't know. It's just a different, just looking at it from a different view. Mm
1: -hmm. I think about something about that feels a little bit liturgical, going in, thinking about what it is to say a series of prayers, and then Uh it kind of reorients you, and then you come back out of it, and then you go back in. Yeah, I find that I have kind of a craving for structure around like those habits, getting distance or reflecting or reading a prayer that's written for me, and then coming back out of it, because it helps the creative process. It helps be a creative human, no matter what our jobs are. So growing up in this like gospel music world and then you do, you've been kind of all across the board. What's the role of spirituality in your work and has that changed over the years? Sure. I mean, it's
0: a servant's role. I mean, you're bringing yourself to the table and you're bringing your artistry and Mm -hmm. what you play. I, I've never really cared whether I play anything on a record or not. Like the, my least favorite thing to do would be take a solo. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm not, I don't have a skill where I'm like, let me show off this skill. Like I don't have anything in me that I want to showcase. So in that, I think I just always want to do what's best for the listener and like also the artists. It. So facilitating that. So, and where I'm going with that is kind of tapping into where an artist, like is what they want to say. Like I want to bring that out. And I think I did get my start. You know, playing in churches with my parents, like Christian music, and then being in a band that was in the Christian music industry. When you get to a point where you're working with people that aren't Christians, there's that sense of like, oh, you're being really missional because you're putting this message out into the world. Like, oh, I'm helping this person put this message out in the world. Maybe I'm not totally on board with that message. And is that a compromise or... Mm -hmm. And then when I kind of took a step back, I was like, oh, a lot of the Christian stuff I work on too is putting messages out <laughs> to the world that maybe I'm not totally on board with either, you know? Right. So it's it's not about like being totally on board with maybe the message that's coming through, but giving this person a place to explore who they are as a human. This is where they're at. You want to give an accurate representation of that and also treat someone in a way and give them an environment where they can grow mm-hmm. and mm-hmm just have conversations where you're both learning in the process Mm -hmm. and it's just a very rigid artistic environment in the Christian industry sometimes where you're like we got to put out this message that we know is true and Mm -hmm. like that sense of like there's this truth that we have to guard and put out and be very Mm -hmm. exact about as opposed to just creating a space where people can kind of ask questions and explore and grow as a person and yeah I don't know I've grown so much I I hope you know like and I hope the other people that I've worked with have too.
1: Yeah, I was actually just talking to our mutual friend, Andy Osango, about that. And I found that it, as he was asking me questions about it, I found like I'm almost frustrated trying to talk about it and put it into words because there's so much, there's so much nuance to this conversation of like yeah. how we integrate. So I just did the same thing to you. Sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, <didn't> to frustrate <laughs> you with it. But it is, it's a hard question without a clear answer. What I'm pushing toward in that, my hope is that as I grow and as we go forward as people, that we become more fluid about it, that the ideas and what we're putting forward becomes more of like, it spills over, you know? Like if if this were a farm that there, you know, you've got a pasture for corn and then you've got a pasture that this part has sheep and then this, you know, but what would it look like to just sort of have space for things? Like, okay, well, We don't want all of this to blur together. It's not the idea that it's universal, Uh but it's that we would have a fluid motion in between each part of the farm to where we realize it's all under the light of God's sun and the moon, you know, that shines on it and the rain that falls on it just the same. But thinking about that artistically, that as we move in and out of projects—and I've done that over the years, I think— I think that's partly why I asked the question is it's like, well, sometimes it's a gospel record. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like a batch of narrative songs that ask a lot of questions.
0: I've been kind of struck with this idea of, I was saying a second ago, I kind of grew up with this idea of like, oh, the truth, like you've got to protect that and guard it and put it forward and share it with people. Mm-hmm. And I think that just assumes that it's something you can have ownership of. And the older I've gotten, I've been like, okay, the truth and God is something that you don't own, but you participate in and share it with others, but it's not something that can be a commodity in that way. Yeah. And it doesn't need you to sell it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, but <laughs> right. it needs you to participate in it and commune with it and... I think just trying to create an environment where people can kind of come to that place and yeah. and then I think when people hear music where people are connected to that and moving in and out of it you feel that on a really deep level like I've been to so many concerts or many artists that wouldn't professed themselves to be Christian and even Christians would be like man there's something going on with that guy that guy's tapped into something you know like they've moved beyond themselves and maybe that's sort of into that bigger picture of you know dying to yourself and losing your ego and not being controlled by your ego where Mm -hmm. you want to get an artist to a point where what they're doing isn't driven by their ego.
1: look back over the last say 10 years where do you feel like a few projects maybe that come to mind that are the most life-giving for you which is how I would define you know success and maybe it's not production maybe it's
0: I mean yeah I would say it was just any record where we felt like where you just sort of went off into uncharted territory and
1: yeah
0: and weren't sure if it was going to turn out well think the records were like okay we know what this needs to sound like we know what this needs to do and we need to go hit that mark Hmm. it never does hit that mark
1: so Hmm. it i don't know does something surprising usually right? But maybe
0: the records where you're like let's just sort of explore and see where it leads us like
1: what do you think hmm. about like what's the role of collaboration in that that's something you think about intentionally or does it just you seem like a natural collaborator
0: yeah i mean Collaboration is great because you can have other people around that are strong where you're weak, and you can learn from that. Like when I first started making records, it was always with a group of players in a room, and that was great because, you know, you have this idea of what the song is going to be, and then these people bring different ideas to the table, and it turns out better than you think it's going to be.
1: And you were in a band at this point, so it was all well. A just lot even of when I started producing,
0: okay. you know, where I would hear, you know, someone would write their song. And they bring it to you and you kind of envision it in a certain way and you kind of go after that. But then these people have different ideas and it takes its own shape and that's really fun. Mm -hmm. Where now I feel like because it's more coming from a songwriting standpoint, like the vision of where it could go is happening at the same time that the song's being written. Mm -hmm. So there's less chance for it to take a surprising left turn later. Mm -hmm. Like it's all kind of going to the same place (laughs) initially. I miss those days where, you know, people would come in And, you know, throw a wrench in the gears and you'd end up in (laughs) a a whole new place. But even when that was happening, I always craved that time where I'm like, okay, I can't wait to take all this back home by myself and, you know, sift through it and arrange it and kind of dig into it. So when I am in those situations where there's a lot of other people throwing in ideas, that's great. And then I can kind of get in a panic where I'm like, I just need everyone to go away where I can just follow my own train of thought for a while. Because when you're in that zone, you're never really getting to follow your own train of thought either. Mm -hmm. It's just always other people's. I like a balance of feeling out of control when other people are chipping in and then where I can kind of like rein it all in into a place and then opening it back up to players again. Mm -hmm. The most ideal process for me, I think, has always been having... Two or three weeks with an artist where I would always say it doesn't matter if we do anything productive in this amount of time. We just need to be exploring and finding approaches and Mm -hmm. ways to do these songs. It's interesting. Let's make a big mess and then put it on the shelf for a few weeks and (laughs) go work on something else. And then come back to it where you're not as emotionally attached to the moment, the creative moment of when it was happening. And you can kind of be a little more objective and be like, look at this mess we made. Now, how do we take this and turn it into a record? And that there would be enough spontaneity in that, that the record would feel fresh and have that spark. But then mm-hmm. you kind of mm-hmm. polish it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Make it feel like an intentionally done mm. product. That way of working is not happening as much anymore.
1: I mean, I'm not a painter, but you almost think, it almost seems like you talk about that process like a little bit visually. Like I can imagine it as you're describing that. Yeah. <laughs> like you throw a bunch of paint uh-huh. <laughs> and then you put it aside and then you come back to it and you begin to see the shapes. I mean, I think that's a big part. Like I hear that theme. There's like, there's like a action and then reflection, action and reflection.
0: So one of those books where it talks about like the, the editor doesn't get invited to the first half of the process. Mm-hmm. Like you've got to have that period of time where you're just,
1: just unfiltered, just
0: unfiltered creativity, get it all out, yeah. like get the subconscious going and get it all out. And then mm-hmm. that second half, like you've got to be. Your harshest critic, you know, yeah. and I think a lot of people either like their whole project is created with a harsh critic in the room constantly and it feels yeah. a little stifled or the critic never gets invited. So it just feels like you're asking really what's the difference between a record and a demo? I think a demo still has that. It's like, oh, this feels really off the cuff and loose yes. and fresh, and that's cool. But it's almost like the editor never got invited, <laughs> you know? Where I feel like a good in product, you uh-huh. feel that creativity coming yeah. out, but also like the, the editor still got to come <laughs> to the party. And someone up.
1: came and like hemmed the edges yeah. and gave it gave it a, a frame. <laughs> yeah, that's they're both really important, and I guess there's a lot of artistic voice in being because in a lot of ways you're the editor. You know, Uh as well. Like you kind of come in on the front end with the artist or the band. And try to encourage the m- most amount of color and originality on the canvas. And then you also have to come back later and put on this other side of your brain, which mm-hmm. is the, yeah, and that's the, the hard part because
0: that's what takes the longest It does amount yeah. of time. And you work harder, I feel like, in that stage, but you don't see the progress as quickly. Yeah. You know, so it, it can get a little bit like, oh my gosh, is this ever going to get done? And yeah. I'm feeling like two I hours can't. away from I have being not, done for very- two days and I still feel like I have like, what have I been doing in here?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> excited about right now what's coming up that I, I feel like you're always excited about something knowing you and Cooley <laughs> yeah. what's on the horizon for you that you're um looking forward to uh
0: so Trent Dabbs we've you know. been writing a lot this past couple of years and you know we've talked on and off about me doing a record for him for a long time And so we set a week or two aside just to see what we'd come up with on our own and it kind of had its own sound so we you know, made it a project called Future Fathers. So That's great. we've been doing that. We, we just released the song and, you know, we have a few more singles ready to go. So awesome. we'll probably just keep releasing singles until we have a full album's worth. and then
1: Yeah. Could you imagine like touring that or just it's kind of a... Yeah,
0: we talked about sending it. Sending it out.
1: Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, we
0: really want to do it, you know, like mm-hmm. it's... We don't mm-hmm. want it to just be an afterthought. But Trent and I have been writing with that band, American Authors, on and off throughout this year. And so we've got about five or six songs with them. And then Butterfly Boucher and I did three songs for Missy Higgins, an Australian artist, this past year. And they just came back and they have a song, kind of a last minute addition to the record that they wanted us to do. So we're doing that quickly this week too
1: it's interesting because when people think about nashville and music i think sometimes we have a very small view of what we think that is over the years i've really admired how you've but your curiosity will lead you to kind of continue to find and explore and Uh collaborate in different ways with people and
0: i definitely love i think i'm really curious and i think i was listening to like music business radio one time with charlie peacock and and he was like oh he's like i feel like I don't know if you use the word mistake, but like something he's done in his career is like I'm very curious, so I'd very I get into this style of music and I wanted to learn that, then I get into this style and want to learn that, and he's like probably if I was being smarter I would have done something like T Bone Burnett where I was like this is my sound and I do this you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm like oh man I relate to that so much like I feel like like oh I want to oh what's going on in the radio yeah that's cool how do they do that oh I kind of get those sounds can I make that and you know just to see if you can you know and then I want to make like a real Dirty acoustic record, and uh, you know, just kind of move around. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, probably if I was thinking about this in a smarter way mm-hmm. <laughs> commercially, I would be like, this is my sound, and this is what I do, and you can come to me for that thing. And yeah, so I've I feel a little bit all over the map sometimes.
1: Yeah, and maybe that's its own thing. I mean, uh-huh. I, I, I read a book last year called Essentialism, and it was really helpful for me because uh-huh. I do feel like I go like a hundred directions at once. And this idea of focusing energy toward one stream or one, Mm -hmm. you know, channel. But within that, I think the most important thing, though, is just like celebrating who you are. And that's part of who you are is that natural, like, curiosity that does kind of flare out, you know, in these different ways. You
0: know, what I always try to tell an artist when I'm working with them is you are the most unique piece to this puzzle. Like, it's not me. I think sometimes people come to a producer. They're like, oh, you, you do your thing. Like, we like mm-hmm. what you do. You do mm-hmm. your thing. Play this stuff and arrange yeah. this for us. And I'm like, no, no. If you're not bringing yourself, I can't do my job. Yeah. Like, my job is playing off you. So mm-hmm. that's why I like that stage at the beginning where it's get everything out. Like mm-hmm. Give me as much of yourself as possible. Then let me say, okay, of all, everything you gave me, we're going to focus on this 20%. Mm-hmm. And we're going to put it together maybe in a way that you wouldn't have thought it would go together. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be interesting, and you're going to totally recognize yourself mm-hmm. in it. You're going to be like, "That's yes." Me. And and so like, and that's it's still
1: going to have your fingerprints, but it's not going to be
0: mm-hmm.
1: controlled by your sensibility. Well, I'm so glad for the time, and I'm excited for people to hear more from you and to like. I don't know. I just I love the way you are. Your humility to kind of be behind the scenes on the projects, but that you. Then I look back over the work you've done and it's just like, it is a serious artistic contribution with like excellence and care and thoughtfulness and everything that you do. And I just, I want people to know about that. And I'm, I just love being able to hit record on a conversation so that others can participate in that and know more about what you're doing.
0: It means a lot to me because I, (laughs) and when you're in that zone where you're just always kind of pushing yourself and... Like, sometimes I can't even wrap my brain around what I'm doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it kind of gets <laughs> abstract. You're in in the weeds, right? Yeah, what well, I really- do can feel very
0: <laughs> abstract and very not concrete. Like, Katie Herzig released a song from the record that we did for her I last love year. I it so
1: much, by the way. Those oh, thanks. songs are just
0: loving it. And then one of the Future Fathers songs came out and a friend texted me like, hey, these sound great. And I was like, oh, gosh, it feels like it's been such a long time since something's yeah. been released, you know. And Yeah.
1: Yeah, I feel that way with the songs from the valley too that we've been working on it for a couple years really. Mm-hmm. It's poetic that it's coming out on Ash Wednesday and just the timing yeah. of that. But but that I've been you and I have been living with these songs and with these stories and with the everything that's in that for so long. It's new for me to wait that long in mm-hmm. between a release, you know. Yeah. So this was parallel with the Psalms record. The songs were written at the same time, but then to wait so long and then I feel like it comes out and it's new for other people. But they're experiencing yeah. it for the first time and it's... Well, I'm so, I've been so excited <laughs> about it
0: because I feel like, you know, that whole the curiosity thing, like the way yeah. we made that record. I've wanted to make a record like that for so long where it yeah. feels like, yeah, it's not like get into a big studio. Like, I mean, we did it in here, but I wanted it to feel like, you know, it was done on a four track recorder. You're documenting a place where you were emotionally and then we were able to sort of add sounds to it. Yeah. It's almost like yeah. this spirit, like you're alone singing these songs and like this spirit mm-hmm. kind of comes in and moves in and out and sometimes it just goes away and sometimes it's very present. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's just sort of how going through the valley feels like that sometimes. Yeah. Like sometimes you're just overwhelmed with the spirit and sometimes yeah. it's so dry. Yeah, and sometimes
1: you can barely hear your voice. Sometimes you're, you're yeah. swallowed up by, yeah, that's so true. Uh,
0: that's what I wanted to feel almost yeah. like I said, like voyeuristic or something. Where yeah. It's like it's so raw. That it almost feels like it shouldn't be. Yeah. (laughs) And that was sort of like your piece of the puzzle to bring to that record. Like that's the thing that only you could have brought is like your songs and your vulnerability and, Mm -hmm. you know, the delicate, fragile performance. I don't know. I just wanted that to be really driven that way. And I knew I could do that with you because you can really (laughs) see you're you're a great performer, you know.
1: Thank you. Well, I think it's been an added gift, even though it wasn't really intentional. It's not like we started out thinking, oh, let's make a record over five years or whatever it's going (laughs) to take. Like We weren't trying to be slow, but I do think even the joy and the healing, it's almost like you can trace some of the healing of Mm -hmm. the songs in the songs because of the time that it takes. So this idea of the podcast and these conversations we're talking about this theme of Steadfast and I think one of the things about this kind of work and production work and what we've been talking about is patience is like it's funny it's it haunts me a little bit that that theme that Paul would say love is patient and the first thing is patience mm-hmm. but that it takes time you know and it takes patience with ourselves to to know and be known and to allow ourselves to be open to the stories that are happening and then goes and sometimes you get to put out a record that says like here was a moment and i want it to be remembered yes. so i just i'm thankful for you and the work that you do and the way you do it That's so nice. Steadfast is a Harbor Media production. It was produced and edited by Mike Cosper and TJ Hester. It was mixed by Mark Owens and recorded by Seth Talley.